Hello, so good to see everyone. Good to see you out at the West Campus, even though I can't see you like this. I know you're there. Um, welcome to Women in the Word. We are going to continue to look at the life of Abraham. <sighs> so today, I wanna encourage us all by looking at the blessings that God has for us when we pursue his heart and the dangers that surround us when we don't. Abraham and Lot present the perfect blueprint for us of how to be an intimate friend of God or a close friend of this world. So I wanted to look at this picture Douglas is gonna put up here for us. Okay, how many of you have seen this picture before? Yeah, doesn't it bring back memories? I really hadn't seen it since I was a little girl and I just love it. I, I actually think it's very beautiful. We often associate this picture with Christ knocking on the door of our heart for our salvation. But truthfully, this comes from Revelation 3.20. You might look on your verse sheet at that. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And this was written to the church of Laodicea in Revelation. And so, truthfully, a better interpretation of this verse is that it's about God seeking an intimate fellowship, an intimate relationship with us. And he won't force that on us. Notice there's no handle on the outside of the door. We have to invite him in. He wants that fellowship. And when you see the word meal, that really symbolized deep fellowship with each other, deep fellowship with God in this case. So he was knocking on the door of the hearts of the people of Laodicea, and he still knocks on ours, and he says, open the door to friendship with me. Thanks, Douglas. Years ago, I was shopping in Fredericksburg, and I found this Valentine plaque, and it said this, my love has my heart, and I have his. Now, I didn't buy it, but when I got home, I told Ted about it, and he said he wished that I bought it because he loves me. So then I told him how much it cost, and then he said with even more passion, I just love you, because <laughs> I didn't buy it. <laughs> The creator of the universe has paid a very high price that we might hang a plaque like that on our heart that says, my heart, God has my heart and I have his. My God has my heart and I have his. And I think that if there could have been plaques back in Abraham's day, that plaque would have been at the entrance of his tent. So I want us to go and look so we can learn what does it mean to have friendship with God. Let's just look at the first verse in chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So he's sitting at his tent. Remember a couple weeks ago we looked at the oaks of Mamre. This was where Abraham decided to settle after God said, look up, this land is yours. Go out, look it, claim it, walk it, and live in it. It's the promised land. And Abraham is doing just that. There he is by these oaks. He's built an altar there. 
in this town of Hebron to the one true God. So he pitched his tent in the will of God and he stayed there. And that's how we can become friends with God. We pitch our tent in the will of God. That's what we do. Psalm 139 says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grave, grievous way in me and lead me in your will. Lead me in the everlasting ways. We cannot be a friend of God if we live life unaware of God's will or we live life opposed to God's will if we make selfish choices that disobey his voice, disobey his word, Disobey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We can't be a fair-weathered friend to God. We can't make him a friend of convenience if we want to grow the friendship. We have to pitch our tent in the will of God and keep it there. So sitting next to his tent in the land of promise, Abraham was right where God asked him to be. And it was hot. So I want you to picture mid-July in Texas, hot. In fact, where Abraham was living at this point in the summer, it would be about 110 degrees. Um, so it was a hot day. People did their work in the morning, and they would rest in the shade in the afternoon, which is perfect, because where does he live? By the Oaks of Mamre. He's got some shade. He's probably napping. And uh, let's see what happens, verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth, and he said, Oh, Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham's napping. We can picture him outside his tent there. When he raises his eyes, standing pretty near to him, are three men looking over him. What he doesn't know at this point is that two of them are angels, and one of them is the Lord himself. The Lord translated here is Yahweh. This is the God of the covenant with Abraham. So it's the fifth time the Lord has come to Abraham since Canaan, it's the first time he's come in the form of a divine guest. Wow. Amazing. So these three visitors are waiting for an invitation by Abraham to have fellowship. The sun is high in the sky. The walls of the tent are flapping in the breeze above Abraham. And just off to the side a little bit, these three men wait in the east it's a courtesy to wait for an invitation. In fact, waiting by standing is equivalent to us knocking on somebody's door. They're waiting. They couldn't draw nearer until Abraham invited them to do so. Does that remind you of the picture we just saw? That's what's going on here. Christ initiates a relationship with us. We must respond to the initiation. We respond as he initiates that intimacy with us. We have to look up into his eyes 
to become our friends. If we go, his friends. If we go through life napping, uh, it's not going to work. We have to wake up. We have to look up. We have to turn our eyes away from all the things that want to grab its attention and stop and get away and look up because he's always looking at us. He's always waiting for that moment to draw us closer into friendship with him. I love uh, Shelley Davis's testimony. I forgot to ask her if I could tell this. Oh, well. So, <laughs> oh, oh, she gave me the thumbs up. Oh, good. You know, anybody would look at Shelley's life as a young person and think there's a productive young woman, finished high school, went to UT, finished college, got a nursing degree, was a nurse, uh, very active. One night, though, she's visiting her sister and she can't sleep. And so she gets up and I think she had an Oreo or two in the middle of the night. <laughs> her brother-in-law was a believer, Shelley was not, and he had a commentary out. She opened the first page of the commentary, and there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she reads that gospel, understood it, and realized she'd been napping up to this point in her life. And when she looked up in the kitchen, who do you think was there standing, waiting for that invitation of fellowship? Jesus Christ was already there and waiting for Shelly. And she's been an incredible person since then and doesn't take naps anymore. <laughs> been awake for God ever since. How does Abraham respond here? He is excited. All he knows at this point is that there are these three men desiring friendship. He bows low. He responds with typical Eastern courtesy, politeness, hospitality. We see these wonderful elements of respect, lots of activity to meet the needs of his guests. You know, he probably helped wash their feet. That would have been one of the first things you do for a guest because I found out they often travel just walking barefoot. So your feet are hot and hurting and dirty. He would have done that. He also wanted to get them out of the heat. He knew it was dangerous to be out in that sun, and he brings them into his shade, and then he wants to provide a meal. Why? Deep fellowship. That's what the meal symbolized. Let's look at verse 6. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And then he ran to the herd and he took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, so let's look at these actions of this older man here. We, we, we saw two weeks ago Abraham go to battle. Now he's doing something else. It's the heat of the day, and he's running, 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 getting, doing everything quick. Sarah makes some cakes. He runs to the herd. He has a calf prepared. He runs with the meal to his guests. And here's what we can realize. We can see how well-ordered a household Abraham lived in. From these few verses, just a few words, we get a beautiful picture of a well-run home. And because it was well-run, he was able to have a meal prepared quickly 
and spend more time with his guests. I read that Sarah's cakes here would have been these special cakes you make and you fry them twice. And I thought, if God can eat fried food, (laughs) feel guilty no more. (laughs) They probably roasted this calf into small portions on a skewer. They wrapped it in the bread that Sarah made, sort of like a pita. This would have been a treat. They didn't eat a lot of meat um, at that time in Israel. In fact, first time I went to Israel, so incredible, the vegetables and these salads that they make that are phenomenal. And our tour group, we were so excited and we got up, you know, and every day there'd be those salads and the whole buffet would be pretty much just green and colorful and beautiful. But after about seven days of that, and in the same salads and vegetables out for my breakfast as I would be eating for my dinner, this is true, On the, we did, what, 12 hours flying home from Israel, and I can remember the talk as we were landing was, who's going to Joe T's with me? <laughs> really, half the plane didn't even go home. They got in their cars <laughs> and went to Joe T's. So this is the scene with God and his angels eating Abraham's food. It is an amazing scene. An amazing scene of the goodness of God and how he wants to be with us and spend time with us. Did they need to eat? Did the angels need to eat? No, they did it to show love to Abraham. This was an extended time for God and Abraham to deepen their covenant relationship. And I thought, you know, how extended and meaningful are my times with God when I don't prepare for it? When my house is in such disarray, literally and figuratively, when my life is, when my heart is not in order, how meaningful and deep are my moments with God. To be God's friend, we have to eagerly prepare for fellowship with him. God's friends know it's imperative to have intimacy with him, and in order to accomplish it, they are prepared, they have a plan. God's friends have a journal, a Bible reading, a place. They have something that they know to do, a prayer list, a reading plan, and an alarm clock something we don't always want to have. Otherwise, days go by, weeks go by, months go by, and we have not sat down at the dinner table with our God. Intimate fellowship doesn't just happen haphazardly. So we see here, all of a sudden, Abraham's preparation has stopped. He becomes still. He stands near his guests to be with them as they eat. He's giving them his full attention. And because of that, Abraham is going to be blessed beyond what he could imagine. The Lord has come to confirm the coming of Isaac. The Lord has come to tell Abraham, you know, I promised you descendants. Let me tell you when that's going to happen. And standing in his presence, Abraham's going to find out even more than that. To be God's friend, we are still in his presence and we listen well. Look at verse 9. 
They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord's old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. When these visitors knew the name of Abraham's wife, Abraham knew these are no ordinary visitors. And then when one of them discussed the promise of a son... Abraham knew, I am in the presence of the Lord God. God had come to confirm his promise personally to Abraham. He had fellowshiped with Abraham. Now it was time to make his announcement. Now I want us to picture Sarah in the shadow of the tent, kind of behind the opening of the door. She's listening to the astonishing words that she'll have a son at the same time next year. She does not believe it. If we look close in the shadow of the tent door, we can see her little smile. We can hear her little laughing to herself. This is an announcement of a humanly impossible birth. But is the child from a dead womb too marvelous for one who calls everything into existence? It wasn't a laughing matter. Nothing is impossible for those in covenant fellowship with God. In fact, all things are possible with God. And God knew this was a truth that Sarah needed to learn. That he was not like the gods of the Canaanites. He wasn't made out of sticks and stones. He was the God, the creator God of the universe. He was God Almighty. So as we wait in the presence of God, he will reveal who he really is. Sometimes I think to myself, of all the things I could learn about God more if I took more time to be still in his presence. Hasn't it happened to you sometimes when you're quiet in his presence and he tells you things you just had never understood or let it settle in your hearts about him? He wants us to know him. That's why he came to Abraham's tent. That's why he comes to us. And he wants us to know, is anything too hard for the Lord? When we get all about our worlds and our circumstances and everything seems overwhelming, our health, our money, our children, relationships, he says, here I am, look up, get with me, hear my voice. Is anything too hard for me? We have to get with him to be encouraged by those truths. And then he can begin to tell us, this is who I am. This is what I do. Come to me. You know, the term is anything too hard is connected to the words wonder working. So you could also translate it, there is no wonder that God cannot do. Remember the names for God in Isaiah, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. 
Well, in wonderful counselor, wonderful means, wonder working. God can be called the wonder working counselor, but we won't recognize that. We won't recognize God can work wonders if we don't give him the time to tell us that. Something else happens when we're still before the presence of our God. Sometimes I don't like it, but it's good. As we wait on God, he's going to reveal who we really are. Not only who he is, he's going to reveal who we really are. So after Sarah's faithless laugh, God says, why did Sarah laugh? Now, did God know why Sarah laughed? He wanted Sarah to know why she laughed. He wanted Sarah to realize you've got a weak faith. You're having trouble understanding who I am. You need to deepen your beliefs in my promises. And I love that God is so kind. He repeats his promise for Sarah. He says it again. When I return to you about this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. At that point... Sarah's beginning to realize these are no ordinary visitors out there. And in her fear, she gets defensive and lies and says, I didn't laugh. And God says, no, but you did laugh. In the presence of God, Sarah has learned she's a liar. Those are the kind of things he tells us when we get alone with him. They're horribly good. As we wait in the presence of a holy God, our unholy attitudes and actions will be exposed, and then we can change. Look at verse 16. Then the men set out from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. As Abraham's visitors tell Abraham, we're going on their way and they leave his hospitality, Abraham walks with them. So I want us to envision God, two angels, God's friend Abraham standing poised on the edge of a hill, looking down into the valley, into the cities of the valley, and Sodom specifically. And God knows time has come for a further revelation for Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No. This is incredible. God's friends are permitted to know God's plans because we're his friends. John 15, 15, Jesus said this years later, no longer do I call you servants. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Fellowship with God is always associated with knowing the will of God. And once we know God's will, he uses us, his friends, to carry out his will into the world. What a privilege. 
God reveals his plans to Abraham here for some other important reasons. He says, you know, Abraham is going to be the blessing to all the nations. I need to make him understand why some of these people in these cities are not going to be these nations blessed by Abraham. These cities must be judged to make way for the covenant people to come one day. A people that will follow the one true God. And secondly, he wants Abraham to see his plans so he can teach that solemn lesson to his descendants. That God is a God of righteousness and justice and they are to be a people of righteousness and justice. In their obedience, the descendants of Abraham would get to reap the blessing God wants to give this new nation. Okay, so we just read that God says, I'll go down and check it out. Does God need to go down and check it out? He does it for Abraham's benefit. So he will witness his justice and trust in him. Now, I thought to myself, what if when Abraham's guests said to Abraham at the tent, we're done here, have a good day, we're leaving, and they took off and Abraham just stood at his tent door and said, bye, because he took the time to continue to walk with him, he got to learn the will of God. He stayed with his guests. He stayed with the Lord. He took the time to learn his will. Look at Psalm 143. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. When we walk with God in an attitude of prayer patiently throughout the day, we can grasp his plans, we can understand his will and situations in our lives, and that's like being led on level ground. I love that in Psalm. Instead of dropping in pitfalls throughout the day, we're walking on level ground because we're approaching things in his presence, prayerfully. Uh, Ted likes to tell the story, my husband, that when he graduated from seminary, he went to work for Young Life, and the very first thing they said was, we want you to go work at a camp all summer, and we're not going to pay you any money. <laughs> now, Ted didn't have any money, so he was like, I need some money. I'm, I'm going to debate if I should go to this camp or not. And he prayed, and he sought God's will, and he went, and we're so glad because I wouldn't have met him. I wouldn't have the honor of being here right now. He spent time with God before he just did what he wanted to do. And God said, go to that camp. The more we invest seeking God's will, the more he's going to reveal his will to us. He wants to do that. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
Okay, do you notice in verse 22, as the angels are going towards Sodom, Abraham is still standing before the Lord. But what's he doing in verse 23? He's drawing near to his friend Yahweh because now he wants to talk himself. He has questions. He's confused. He has petitions and concerns. He wants to intercede for the people of Sodom, which tells you about Abraham's heart. I think he was thinking about Lot, but I was think he was thinking about more than Lot here. We can picture Abraham and God still standing, looking out, looking down at the city of Sodom. Abraham's feeling a huge burden over this news, and he quietly walks up so near to God, he's probably touching his robes. And then he begins to talk to him. And he has full assurance of faith as he does that. Look at Hebrews 10. Let's draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love that one of the joys of fellowshipping with God is our privilege and our duty to pray for other people. To be God's friends, we share our burdens with him, but we do it, I thought this is a neat combination, in humble confidence. We're confident with God, humbly. To be God's friends, we do this. Abraham presents his heart's desire to the Lord in this way, and I think our friendship with God should never allow us to forget our true position of dependence on God. We don't just tell God what he has to do and claim it. We approach God with humility and with our desires. We understand God's holiness, my sinfulness. God's greatness, my nothingness. But we also know that we are speaking and our prayers are touching the ears of a God of mercy and patience and compassion. To know, to be God's friend. We can draw strength from knowing his character. Abraham couldn't fathom God might destroy the righteous with the wicked. So he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Takes his concerns right to God. I think he was also concerned for God's reputation. He didn't want the other nations to get the wrong impression of God. And so he says, I want them to know what a just God you are. I think Abraham could also be bold in his prayer because he believed in that justice of God. God listens to him, God cares, and God kindly responds, yes, I will spare the city, letting him know his plans. And because Abraham also knew God was patient and compassionate, you read how he perseveres in his prayer. He goes from 50 to 10 people perseveres in his prayers with God, and God agrees, and the Bible tells us, and then he departs, and Abraham returned to his place. That's the very last line um, in chapter 19, 18, Abraham returns to his place, and I think that is an anticlimactic ending to this <laughs> meeting with God, but you know what is wonderful about it? It shows Abraham's faith in God. 
He didn't follow God running, still debating him. He didn't run down to Sodom himself and try to get the people out of the city. He returned to his place. He went back to his tent, confident that he had left his burdens in the hands of a merciful and a mighty God. To be God's friend, we live life trusting that he's going to do what's best. We return to our place. We have things to do in the daytime, but we do it in peace because we've left our cares in the hands of our capable, compassionate God. So here's some of the main implications of this time with God and Abraham. God confirmed the timing of the promise of a son. Abraham was to teach his descendants justice and righteousness and the truth is established that the God of justice is also a God of mercy. We see here that he was going to even spare the city for 10 righteous people. Now, because of the evil in the valley, there were actually five different cities destroyed um, at this time. We'll read about in a little bit. So Abraham leaves us this blueprint for growing a friendship with God. What can we do to grow a friendship with the world? It's a lot easier. Do you get that? It's a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, Lot's blueprint is pretty interesting. Were there 10 righteous in the city of Sodom? No, and sometimes we even wonder about Lot himself. But Lot knew God. He knew the difference between good and evil. He chose not to commit the sins of the people of Sodom. Here's how we know that. Look at 2 Peter on your verse sheet. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So we read that Lot was grieved by these behaviors in Sodom, but there's some way this evil city is still holding onto his heart, and there would be grievous consequences for his friendship with the world. And I think Lot illustrates believers today who know God, but who are more enamored with the ways of the world than God's ways. I think Lot liked the lifestyle in Sodom as far as being where the action was. I think he preferred making money more than sitting with God like his uncle Abraham was on a hill. Lot's heart was here. So it would be difficult to remove Lot from Sodom and difficult to remove Sodom from Lot. I think this is probably true. Sodom would have destroyed Lot if the Lord had not destroyed Sodom. So again, this is a graciousness from God. Look at verse 19, chapter 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread 
and they ache. So <clears throat> the last chapter, 18, opens with Abraham sitting near the oaks of Mamre, pitching his tent in the will of God, being where God called him to be. This chapter opens with Lot sitting in the gates of Sodom. Now he's a judge in the city. He pitched his tent in the will of Lot. That's where Lot wanted him to be. That's where he pitched his tent. He's gone from living near the city to in the city, now being immersed in the daily activities of the city. So to be friends with the world, we simply exercise our will over God's will. It's easy to become friends with the world. You just do what you want and you leave God out of the picture. Here's what James 4 says about that. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, Lot knows this city well, and that's why he pleads with his visitors, you don't want to stay in the town square. That'll be a dangerous place for you guys to stay. That was pretty typical for travelers. They'd just kind of wrap their robe around them and stay somewhere in the town square outside. But he knows You'll be in trouble if you do that. The next scene that you read sort of sounds like it comes out of one of the most scary movies you could ever see <laughs> in your whole life. The men of the city surround the house, demanding that Lot give them these two visitors so they could have sex with them. And I'm not talking about just a few men here. Did you notice all the descriptions of these men? Young and old, great and small. From every quarter of the city, I don't know how many men that was. A hundred? Two hundred? It's a frightening moment. They surround the house. Lot comes to his front porch, begging them, don't act so wickedly. And then he offers his daughters for evil. Okay, we can't believe it. He tells the men, don't act wickedly, but let me make a wicked offer here. Sleep with my virgin daughters. Do with them what you will. When we live in the world, we rationalize our sins. Somehow in Lot's mind, this was a lesser sin than him handing the angels over to these groups of men. I think Lot is hypocritical. He's blind to it. So in that way, we see the influence of Sodom on Lot. And then violence breaks out. The town immediately turns against Lot, the guy who's really kind of made his life with them, thinking I'm all a part of all this. When they can't get what they want, they turn on Lot, mock him, almost break down Lot and break down his door. It's this crazy scene. You can see the hands of the angels coming out of the door, lifting Lot up, slamming the door, rescuing him from violence at that very moment. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone in the city, bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, Get out of this place. The Lord's about to destroy the city. And his sons-in-laws went, ha, <laughs> They thought he was joking. Why? 
When we are friends with the world, our spiritual advice seems foolish. Lot's testimony had no power. He'd lived so long as one of them that his message had no power behind it. When the testimony of the life doesn't agree with the testimony of the lips, the testimony of the lips goes unheeded, which is what happens here. Look at verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. He lingered in Sodom. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been engaged in something that's destructive to your soul, but you linger in it? A book, a movie, a friendship, a habit. To be friends with the world means our hearts have somehow been captured. Colossians 2 tells us this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I love this story because praise God that he's merciful. He has the power to deliver our hearts from disaster, and he literally pulled Lot, his wife, and two daughters out of that place of physical and spiritual destruction. He brought them outside the city. He gave them God's instructions. Escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere. Escape to the hills or you're about to be swept away. And wouldn't you have said, thank you. Thank you. I'm going. No, not Lot. Gives us more insight into him. He says, thanks for everything, but I can't live in the hills. I might die there. An animal might get me. I might get cold. I don't know what he was thinking. Let me live in the little city of Zoar. He debates God's plans. It's hard to believe. But rather than obeying God's word, he comes up with his own plan of escape. Why? Because how much more fun would it be if I could just go back into a city? That's where his heart was. That's where his heart was captured. That's why he says it. Let me go to Zoar. To be friends with the world, we push against God's word. These were God's commands that Lot was pushing against. Look at 1 John 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know, I read a quote by uh, Calvin about this very moment that I thought was great. He says, our prayers are faulty when they're not founded on the word of God. Lot not only moved away from God's word, but he opposed it. Why did he fear destruction in the mountains when he would be protected by the hand of God as he was now? Why did he expect to find a safer place near Sodom? 
it is the nature of men to prefer to seek their safety in hell rather than in heaven. This is what happens when we follow our own reason rather than the word of God. God in his graciousness actually allows Lot to go to Zoar and spares the entire city that was going to be destructive because of God's goodness. Verse 23, last thing we're going to read. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. Okay, where was her heart? Back in Sodom. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Abraham, I think he awoke that day, he ran to the side of the hill, he looked out, and I think his heart was heavy because he cared about the people in the valley. He had a compassionate heart. But you know what wasn't heavy on his heart? Wondering if God had done the right thing. When things are hard in our lives, we have to trust that God knows what he is doing. And Abraham did that. He was God's friend. He knew God's ways. He knew this judgment in the valley was the work of a just and a merciful God. When I think about Lot, here's what I think about. Is there anything in this world so wonderful as the mercy that waits for us, God's mercy that hedges us and our path, and does everything he can to keep us from ruin. That he pulls us out of situations that could destroy our lives. And when I think about my life, it may not be something I'm doing here. It may be something I'm doing here. And he pulls me out of that place because he's merciful. Somehow Lot does end up in the hills. I'm guessing the people of Zoar weren't excited to have Lot there. They're thinking, you're responsible for this devastation. He goes up. His soul is saved, but he seems lost as he's languishing in a cave because he'd lived in a halfway house between godliness and worldliness. You read how his daughters get him drunk and sleep with him because they're afraid they'll never have children, and they have children that become the enemies of Israel. So he falls prey to sin that way, but we can also blame him for getting drunk. But here's what I want to think. Where in the world would his daughters have thought of something so evil as that? Where did they grow up? We can blame Lot for that. For his daughters being influenced by that. When we're friends with the world, we will influence others towards evil. So 
So here's the implications of Lot's time with the angels. The world's influence is alluring to believers, but contemptible to God. And when the Lord destroys the wicked, he stays faithful to the righteous, even the righteous that are spiritually stunted, spiritually cold. Okay, so Lot gives a, a blueprint for becoming friends with the world. Let's open Abraham's blueprint. Let's have a blessed life. Let's know our God. Psalm 86 tells us, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love towards me. So let's give our hearts to God, and we can live life with our divine friend right at our side. Let's pray. We give you praise, Father, for we see your love for us in this story. Just remind us of that. Um, urge us to lift our eyes and spend more time with you, to know you, to know how you want to change us. And we will give you the glory and do your will all around us. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.